Hello, and welcome to the Room Madness Podcast, the podcast for everyone who is crazy about rheumatology. My name is David Leverens, and I'm a rheumatologist specializing in medical education, quality improvement, corny jokes, and sharing my over-exuberant enthusiasm about rheumatology with others. I'm so glad you're here. I'm pretty aware that so far our two previous episodes have covered some pretty rare conditions. So in this episode, we're going to get back to some bread and butter rheumatology, rheumatoid arthritis. In particular, we're going to discuss some fascinating new revelations into the pathophysiology of disease flares in rheumatoid arthritis. To do this, I'm joined yet again by Dr. Aki Udupa, a rheumatology fellow, and Dr. Alan Witt, an internal medicine resident, both of whom are not just crazy about rheumatology, but also crazy enough to be on this podcast with me. So welcome back, Dr. Udupa and Dr. Witt. Hello. Hi. Happy to be here. Fantastic. As always, we are going to start with reminders from the previous episode. Uh, Now, you all weren't with me for that episode about relapsing polychondritis, but I do believe you had a chance to listen to it. Uh, So, Dr. Yudupa, what did you take away from that episode that you would like to remind everyone about? (laughs) Yes, I would like uh, to remind everyone that relapsing polychondritis is really complicated and uh, very rare. Even as a rheumatology fellow well into my second year, it's I think we've only seen one uh, patient case, so it is very rare, and that's why it's important to recognize it and appropriately diagnose it. Uh, One of the more interesting factoids and something I learned from that podcast is that uh, one-third of relapsing polychondritis cases actually overlap with another bad problem like systemic vasculitis and myelodysplastic syndrome, which I think the latter of the two is more common in men. So that was just something that I want to make sure I remember if I see this type of patient in the future. Fantastic. Thanks, Dr. Yudupa. And Dr. Witt. Yeah, when I think back to the podcast on polychondritis, I'm reminded of uh, the fact that like the classic presentation for this, which um, is like, you know, ear involvement, the tracheomalacia, the saddle nose deformity, the stuff you read about in the textbook, even if you never see it on the wards uh, as, a, as a resident, is like um, only 14% of the study population for this particular study. Um, and, and, you know, and you made the excellent point that uh, this was a large center, a major center, so they're, they're getting a lot of the atypical cases, so that may be skewed skewed some of their numbers towards more of the less typical cases, but um, I think it still really highlights the significant number of type two and type three cases that are even harder to diagnose. Yeah. Thank you guys. It was a fun episode, but um, I missed having you all. So thank you for sharing that with us and I'm glad you learned something. Well, let's get to our topic for today, the pathophysiology of inflammation and rheumatoid arthritis. A little later, we are going to discuss the details of a really cool paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Orange et al. that provides new insights into what is actually happening in the immune system when rheumatoid arthritis patients have a disease flare. But before we get into that, however, let's do a little primer on rheumatoid arthritis pathophysiology to catch everyone up to speed. In rheumatoid arthritis, the immune system decides that the joints are an enemy rather than a friend. This loss of tolerance to joint tissues is certainly not unique to rheumatoid arthritis, and indeed the majority of patients we see in a rheumatology clinic have an autoimmune attack on the joints. 
So I suppose with that, I wanted to just ask Dr. Yudupa, if we are seeing so many patients with autoimmune inflammatory arthritis, what actually is it that you would say that makes rheumatoid arthritis its own thing? I think the chronicity, duration of flares, and if it's particularly advanced, of course, when a patient walks into the room, now I just stare at people's hands, even if they're not in clinic, because I'm like, oh, that person has RA. They have this very distinct phenotype. Yeah, I totally agree. So I'm a clinician. Uh, that's primarily what I am. And so I think about these diseases clinically. So that's what pops into my head as well is, okay, what is it that makes rheumatoid arthritis its own thing? Well, it's clinical pattern of presentation. You know, this is what it looks like when patients experience this disease. This is its pattern of inflammation. These are the characteristic laboratory findings and imaging findings. And that is absolutely where my brain goes. Today, I'm going to try to flip our brains a little bit in thinking about rheumatoid arthritis, not just clinically, but also how it is its own thing pathophysiologically. Because when you think about it, rheumatoid arthritis does not just have its own distinct clinical presentation, it's also its, distinct, its own distinct disease from other autoimmune inflammatory arthritis by some unique pathophysiologic mechanisms that underlie it. For instance, one of the main triggers of immunologic disarray in rheumatoid arthritis, more than a lot of other autoimmune inflammatory arthritis, is modification of normal host proteins through the process of citrullination or carbamylation. And those then look wrong to the adaptive immune system and trigger a cascade of inflammatory problems, which end in lots of joint inflammation and damage. So T cells, B cells, antibodies, macrophages, complement, inflammatory cytokines, you name it, it's part of the problem. And frankly, we're still really trying to disentangle this inflammatory mess to understand what this disease truly is. But for our purposes today, I do want to focus on what is going on in the joint tissues themselves in rheumatoid arthritis, because that is also very distinctive in this disease. All of the inflammatory changes I just mentioned activate tissues that line the joints called the synovium. And this activated synovium becomes enlarged, inflammatory, and even invasive, eating its way into bony tissue and causing the characteristic erosions of rheumatoid arthritis. We call this activated synovium a panis, and it's comprised mostly of inflammatory cells, extra blood vessels, and activated fibroblast-like synoviocytes. Now, obviously, the inflammatory cells in there are a problem, but these fibroblast-like synoviocytes are increasingly recognized to be a key player in this inflammatory mess. Now, here I do want to provide a little quick shout-out to Dr. Brian Andonian, one of my colleagues at my institution, who taught me a lot about these really tricky cells during an earlier version of Rheum Madness that we did several years ago at our institution. This is actually the first version of Rheum Madness. It was a pilot to see how this kind of thing went. Um, and back then, we called it mechanism madness. And this is when we pitted a bunch of pathogenic mechanisms, in that case of rheumatoid arthritis and gout against each other. So each pathogenic mechanism was a team in the tournament, and they battled it out to see which one was the most important. And along the way, the rheumatology fellows, including myself at the time, learned a lot about the pathophysiology, path pathophysiology of this disease. 
So Dr. Andonian basically championed fibroblast-like synoviocytes as his team in that Mechanism Madness tournament. And really, he single-handedly willed them to victory as the most important mechanism in the tournament. Um, and in that tournament, he pointed out to all of us that fibroblast-like synoviocytes send out key signals that build extra blood vessels and recruit inflammatory cells to the panis. They also directly damage cartilage and bone by themselves, and they create a platform on which all kinds of inflammatory cells can aggregate. And here's the absolutely crazy thing about fibroblast-like synoviocytes. We've learned in the last several years to decade that they can actually migrate between joints, almost like cancer cells metastasizing. Only instead of spreading cancer, they spread inflammatory arthritis. So we have a lot more to learn about these cells. And one of the main reasons I wanted to focus on these mechanisms in particular is that our main paper for today does provide some pivotal insights into this area. So that's a little primer on rheumatoid arthritis pathogenesis. Dr. Witt, I'm curious to know your thoughts on uh, these pathogenic mechanisms. I think for me, you know, I've, I've always learned that rheumatoid arthritis is a disease of the joint and within the joint. So, um, you know, the fact that the, these fibroblast-like cells may be actually migrating through the bloodstream and spreading to different joints in that way, that, that to me, I think, thinking of rheumatoid arthritis as a whole is something more uh, systemic than just isolated into specific joints. I think that's a great segue to get into the paper. So let's get to the main topic for today. This is a paper that was published by Dr. Dana Orange et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine in July 2020, titled RNA Identification of Prime Cells Predicting Rheumatoid Arthritis Flares. So this was a really cool paper. And there's a ton to say here, uh, but before we really get into it, I always like to summarize papers or just try to sum up papers into one or two or maybe a few sentences with as much plain English as I can uh, muster about the paper to really get my head around what I'm learning in the paper. So in this paper, the authors used repeated testing of genetic signatures in the peripheral blood of just a handful of rheumatoid arthritis patients along with repeated patient surveys that assess their disease activity to describe the kinds of immunologic changes that occur before, during, and after rheumatoid arthritis flares. And in so doing, they discovered a new type of cell called rheumatoid arthritis prime cells that share many similarities to those pesky immunologic or inflammatory fibroblast-like synoviocytes that we discussed earlier. That had several commas and a semicolon, but it was a sentence. <laughs> well done. <laughs> One thing that I had noticed uh, when reading the paper is that it had commented on the utility of finding out this result and um, whether it was more for clinical utility in practice or if it was more for usefulness in longitudinal research trials. And it seemed to be the latter, which um, I think is just an important point to make that maybe don't go into reading this paper thinking that this is something that you'd be doing in practice at the moment, but something that can be really useful to understanding rheumatoid arthritis and how it works. That's a great point. 
Yes, that's a nice perspective to have when you're thinking about everything we're about to say is what is this actually going to mean for you uh, as somebody interested in rheumatology? Great point. I would say all of that sounds great. I, I mean, the summary was spot on. And it was, yeah, the, the thing I thought was just so interesting was that they were doing weekly blood sticks to track the you know gene transcription within the bloodstream. And then at the same time, disease activity using clinical scales and then trying to find some pattern between those. Yeah, that's, that's, that's actually a great summary in of itself. That was actually a little shorter than mine. So kudos. <laughs> no semicolon needed to, for you. <laughs> Let's get to the methods. So these methods of this paper were to say the absolute least incredibly complex. And they were filled with a lot of gene analysis software and specialized statistical methods and other methods that, frankly, I'm not familiar with. I think you would probably need a PhD in all of the things that they were doing to really fully understand and vet what they are doing. But I'm going to hit the high points of what they did so we can understand their findings. Essentially, this study was done in four patients, just four, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think this is incredible in and of itself and honestly speaks to a great deal of creativity on their part. Yeah, they just got such an incredible amount of data on four people, and it was very telling. Yeah, absolutely. How on earth did they get enough data from these four patients to find out anything new about rheumatoid arthritis? They collected data from them every single week. So every single week, they had the patients prick their own finger, and actually overnight, those drops of blood in the mail to the research center for genetic analysis. Why did they do this? Um, prior to this study, many others had analyzed transcriptional profiles from the blood of rheumatoid arthritis patients, but these were largely cross-sectional studies which mixed patients with varying stages of disease activity, duration, and severity. So although that kind of study provided a 10,000-foot view of what the average rheumatoid arthritis blood looked like, it missed all of the nuance of how transcriptional profiles could differ between patients with quiet disease and those with active disease. So in this study, the researchers truly accomplished a remarkable feat, even by just developing the methodology that they used of weekly at-home testing that could provide a high-quality RNA for analysis. So for example, over the course of this study, they sequenced RNA from 189 finger stick specimens and 87% of those specimens, again, which were drops of blood and overnighted in the mail, passed quality control for the kind of RNA analysis that they were doing. I'm not an RNA analysis person by any means, but that seems kind of incredible to me. Um, and I think that's one of the things that was really most impressive about this paper in and of itself. So, they had the patients send them genetic material every week for analysis. But in addition, they also had the patients fill out these weekly questionnaires to assess disease activity. Now, their genetic analysis stuff was super fancy. The um, patient analysis was using the RAPID3. And this is interesting because this is the disease activity scale that we use in our clinic at my institution. So the RAPID-3 is a validated measure of disease activity in rheumatoid arthritis that is entirely dependent on patient report. 
So there are many measures of disease activity for rheumatoid arthritis that require a physician assessment, a physician global assessment, and a physician assessed joint count. The RAPID3 is not like that. It's just um, based on patient-reported outcomes alone. So the reason that they did this is that way they had a patient report of disease activity that corresponded to each drop of blood that they took from these patients. This way, they were able to differentiate periods when rheumatoid arthritis was quiet from times when rheumatoid arthritis was flaring, and they could then study the blood of the transcriptional profiles from those different time periods. I am about to get into the results here after really brazenly skimming what is a truly complex methodology. Um, Dr. Udupa, do you have anything to add here to what you thought was important to point out to the methods or any questions or takeaways from the methods? I did something similar to you. I tried to think about the big picture of what they were trying to say. I am very impressed by how reliant the success of this study was on patients and their reliability of following directions and getting everything right. I mean, it's, it, it, again, I guess it is for people who are highly reliable and um, trustworthy to complete this sort of task. But um, you wonder if this could even be feasible in a large group of people. Uh, Dr. Witt, anything else that you have about the methods? Um, well, I like how, you know, the rapid three is probably a more like patient friendly uh, method for like uh, assessing their symptoms, uh, a patient's symptoms. Uh, so that's why it's used in clinic. But then also they did incorporate the, the more extensive uh, DOS 28 uh, at the monthly visits. And then if in the middle of a flare, they would do it. And they did a little graph, I think, with correlating those scores, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. And that's a great point to point out that they did also see these patients in clinic and they did correlate the RAPID3 with the um, the um, DAS28 and other measures that included a joint count. And that's been previously shown that the RAPID3 does correlate pretty well with other measures. Um, but it was nice to see that in this study as well, given that they had these very small numbers of patients. Uh, because as Dr. Udupa knows, using the RAPID3 in clinic, other things beyond rheumatoid arthritis that lead to pain can elevate the scores. Okay, we've got these four people sending their blood every week, doing their rapid three scores every week, going to clinic, telling them when they're having flares. So what did they find? Not surprisingly, thousands of genes changed expression during flares, either up or down. What was perhaps the most interesting was that when the authors looked at the RNA data from the weeks leading up to a flare, before any change in the rapid three was reported by the patients, in this analysis, they noticed an increase in signals that fit with naive B cells about two weeks before the flares began. And they also noticed the presence of a different kind of cell that increased about one week before the flares began and then decreased during the flares. And these cells contained features that were not typical of blood cells and instead looked like mesenchymal cells. They then did quite a few additional tests to further characterize these cells. And to be honest, a full description of these tests really needs to be left to the paper. But at the end of the day, after all of these analyses, they ended up describing a new type of cell that shared many features with fibroblast-like synoviocytes that we were discussing earlier as crucial to the pathophysiology of synovial inflammation and rheumatoid arthritis. And because these cells increased 
just prior to the flares, again, about a week prior to the flares, and because they had mesenchymal cell features, they named these cells pre-inflammatory mesenchymal cells or prime cells. From all of this, they hypothesized that their findings suggest that out of this inflammatory mess that we were discussing earlier, they were able to perceive in this study that prior to flares, naive B cells become activated, which then in turn activate these circulating prime cells, which then home to the joints and join the fray, possibly serving as precursors to inflammatory fibroblast-like synoviocytes that play such a pivotal role in joint damage and inflammation in rheumatoid arthritis synovium. That is my 10,000-foot view summary of this, ta- of this paper and the results. I found it fascinating, and I have some takeaways, but I'm curious to know, uh, Dr. Udupa, what you think about um, these results. This is something that I don't, I don't think I've come across throughout fellowship. The pathogenesis of RA antecedent to the flare. I have not um, really run across a lot of information about what's leading up to rheumatoid arthritis flares either. And I think we just didn't know because nobody had done this kind of thing before. So um, I think that was fascinating. I mean, you know, I, patients ask me all the time, like, why does it seem so random that um, I just all of a sudden have these flares? And, uh, you know, we don't really know what to say. And I'm not necessarily sure this paper necessarily answers the why question. You know, we don't know why the naive B cells get activated. But at the very least, we understand more of the how. You know, this is how it could happen. Going back to what Dr. Witt had mentioned earlier about the mobility of these activated synovial cells. Um, it, it sort of um, dis- kind of dismantles the idea that the joint is a sterile and protected space. And it creates the idea that maybe there are so many other triggers that we just don't know about that are somehow making their way into the joint because the joint is not a fortress like we thought it was. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that key or part of, part of understanding uh, the breakdown of the fortress is understanding more about these fibroblast-like synoviocytes because they do seem to be some of the main orchestrators of not only inflammation, but trafficking to the joint. They themselves or precursors of them with these prime cells seem to actually traffic to the joints themselves. There's so much we have to learn. One takeaway for me, I think, is um, even though it's a small study, where this study kind of shines is that this could be applied even to other diseases that have flares um, and then be able to uh, see what kind of gene expressions are are really changing uh, around the time of those flares. I think it's really important to maybe have those sorts of granular insights. That's such a great point. This paper, we've been thinking about it, or I've been thinking about it primarily in terms of what does it mean for my patients, for rheumatoid arthritis patients, in terms of how their disease works, what's happening inside their joints, what's happening inside their blood as they experience this disease, and understanding more of what is happening when a flare occurs. But you're right, uh, Dr. Witt, this has so many implications also for a number of autoimmune diseases. Um, I mean, this kind of methodology could be used in so many ways. 
Well, fantastic. So this was really fun. I learned a lot from talking with you all about this condition or about this paper. Um, you know, I really enjoyed the chance myself to review rheumatoid arthritis, pathogenic mechanisms in general, um, and to think even harder about those mechanisms as they occur in patients over time. That's it for this episode. If you're enjoying this kind of material, you're welcome to go over to the Room Madness Facebook group, which is home base for the Room Madness tournament, which is going to happen in the spring of this year. We've already had episodes on IgG4 related disease, classification criteria, subtyping, relapsing polychondritis, and now these rheumatoid arthritis prime cells. And I think each of those would be wonderful teams competing in that tournament. But tell us what you think about those teams or these podcast episodes or suggest other episode topics or other teams that you think you'd like to see in that tournament. So thank you all for joining us. Again, thank you, Dr. Udupa and Dr. Witt for joining me again today. And uh, we will see you all later. <laughs>